With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit LifePointPB.com. It's good to be here this morning. If you need a Bible, just wave. Maybe you've forgotten you're somewhere, just wave at one of our... um one of our ushers as they walk by and they'll be happy to pass one to you. Um, And you can turn over to Hebrews chapter 4 if you have a Bible. We're going to be there in just a minute. Before I do that, um, God is doing so many neat things, um, awesome things that he's up to. And and this week, um, just to watch him at work and continuing just to to reveal himself and to set people free. And... there are a lot of testimonies. My fact, you'll hear more and more in the days and the weeks ahead. But um, I wanted you to hear something and see something because this one had a picture to go with it. Laura, where are you at? Where are you at, Laura? Where, where? Oh, there you are. Come on up. Laura, not only was God doing new things in Chuck and Laura this week, but also as Laura was at work. And, and she, had, she told me a story about someone that was really incredible, and I wanted her to share it with you. Is that all? Let's see, if it's, let's see if it's on here. Yep, you should be on. There you go. Am I live? Yeah. So I have... Whoa. You're I have, on. I have the privilege. Hold it closer. Woo! You can turn me off, guys. I hold yours. Okay. So we learned some new tools this last week, and I took them to work with me. And I do have permission to share this story. I have a young woman right now that I've been working with. She's about 25 years old, and she came to me unable to basically speak to me. Um, I couldn't get her out of her room. I couldn't get her to speak at all. Her heart was completely shut down, locked. Had been for quite a while. We started to discover that uh, she was raised with a very critical expressive, demanding, controlling father, and a very disconnected mother. Um, And I wouldn't have had that language, honestly, if I hadn't done the caring for the heart. I mean, I had some of that language, but it really solidified for me what I was looking at. And so I thought, well, you know, what could, what would I have to lose? You know, why don't I just have her spend some time with God and just ask God to help her draw a picture of her pain and, um, and then I asked her that when she got done drawing that picture, if she would then draw a picture of her heart, if God had healed her heart, what it would look like. And so is it up there? I'm not, I'm not seeing it. Um, um, it, was, it was very powerful for this young woman. She actually drew a heart, and in the center of the heart uh, was a black hole. And she said it was just empty and alone and... Um, There it is. Okay, so you see the first heart up on the left is the empty, lonely, uh, hurting, sad, angry, and hopeless. And that's how she came to me. I mean, severe depression. I don't think I've seen... I've seen this type of severe depression twice in um, the seven years I've been doing this professionally. Um, Just severely depressed. And, um, And... 
And uh, when she came into my office to share the picture, there was something that had changed in her because there was a happiness that was on her. And she shared her heart with me, and she shared the first heart, and then she shared the second heart, and she said, you know, what God showed her is that her heart healed, is there's inner peace and there's happiness, and that in the middle she's complete and accepted and whole and loving. And I asked her, I said, so how's your depression today? And she says, I don't feel it at all. She said, all... All I feel is happy. And I was like, you know, me of little faith, it's like, you know, right, like this is going to last. Right. Checking with her the next day. So the next day I go back, so how are you feeling today? Happy? (laughs) I'm like, wow, this is really awesome. So God really met you in your pain and brought you out of that dark place. And she goes, yeah, I can't explain it. But it's just I feel happy all the time now. It's just so amazing. So we're just... So blessed to have Caring for the Heart here, and we're uh, just excited to be able to use some of these tools, and hopefully you're going to be able to have the experience yourself. Thank you. All right, Hebrews chapter 4. On Wednesday... It's been a a very full week, started actually last week, um, prior to last Sunday, and very full and all kinds of things going on. Do I need to switch, Chris? Is it going to pop? All right. Sorry about that. We will will change here and do something different and see if we can figure out what's going on later with that. But on Wednesday... of this week, this, just a few days ago, it, it was finally quiet one morning. I, I was here, and the counselors were back in their rooms, and everybody else was in different places, and, and I sat down, and it, it was quiet. There was nobody, just me. And that hadn't happened in several days, and, and so I just sat down before the Lord, and I, I thought about today, and, I, and, and God was, is and was and is doing incredible things in people's lives, and I'm like, Lord, what do you want to say to your people on Sunday? Where do I go? I mean, all of this, there's so much, and it's so full, and I'm so full, and I'm also, Lord, my, my, my brain is just kind of shot in all of this, and what do you want to say to your people? Where do you go? And the Lord prompted with a phrase. I knew it was in Hebrews. I didn't remember exactly where, but this phrase came to mind. It was actually the first part of this verse. I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation, um, if it's a little different than yours. But um, it was really the first part. I'll read the whole verse, but it's just really the first part that God spoke. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. That's what he said. Troy, that's what I want you to tell him. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. It goes on, it says, so we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. Often, depending on the translation that you look at, it'll emphasize the fear and the tremble and all of that. But the emphasis in the verse, and if you look at the Greek, the emphasis is on the promise, not on the fear. But he is saying, he's not saying he wants you to walk around in fear. What is he saying? He's saying, if you were going to fear something, which he doesn't want us to, because the scripture is very clear, over 400 times he tells us not to fear. But if we were going to fear something, if there was something that was going to make us afraid, 
This is what should make us afraid, the thought that we might not enter into his rest. That should make us afraid. It shouldn't make me afraid about relationships, where they are today or where they might be, or finances or health or all those other things. Jesus, he's going to take care of all those things. But he says, there's something you want to be afraid about? There's something that, if anything were going to move you to fear, this would be it. There's a rest that still stands, but some won't experience it. Now, as you read this, you may think that he's talking about being saved, our initial conversion experience. But if you read through the chapter, you're going to find that he's talking to believers here. He talk, matter of fact, he talks about in verse 3, he talks about to those who have believed. And verse 11, again, I mean, you're going to see over and over again. And then when he gets to the end of the chapter, in verses 14 and 15, you will see clearly He's talking to believers. There's a rest that he's talking about that comes, that's for believers, that's for you and me. That's, that's more than just, I believed in Jesus, and so I'm going to heaven when I die. There's a rest for today. When this starts, if you read this in other translations, the first word in verse 1 is, therefore. You all know, we've talked about this, that when you see therefore, it connects, it's a connecting word, to what was just said. In chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews is laying out the children of Israel and what took place. And we're not going to go back and read all of chapter 3. You could read it on your own. But let me tell you what's happening in chapter 3. He's telling the story of the children of Israel. They're being led out of Egypt. Everything that's given to us, according to 1 Corinthians 10, in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing. It's a picture. It's to help us understand who God is and what Jesus is all about and what he is doing, what he's going to do and what he is doing. It's a picture for us. It's there, according to 1 Corinthians 10, it is there as an example to us, as this revelation of God and his plan in our life. We know that the children of Israel were in Egypt, in slavery, in bondage. We know last year when we were going through the seven feasts, we talked about that Passover being the first feast. And they were led out of Egypt on that Passover evening by the shedding of the blood, the sacrifice of the perfect lamb, the blood put on the door. And then they were, the, the death angel passed over, and then they were led out of the Lord, by the Lord, out of Egypt, out of the world, out of bondage, out of slavery. And he led them out, but he didn't just lead them out to let them wander around. He led them out so he could lead them in. That was his purpose. He didn't just want to get them out of Egypt. He wanted to get them into the promised land. And so for you and me, he led us out of bondage. If if you're a believer in Christ today, if you're born again, if you've been converted, he led you out of bondage. He led you, the scripture says he took you from the kingdom of darkness and put you in the kingdom of his dear son. That's, that's a reality, that's a spiritual reality that has taken place. But he didn't just bring you out to leave you wandering. He, br- he led you out to lead you in. Where did he want to lead you to? Rest. Rest. There remains. The promise of God of entering his rest still stands. It still stands. The children of Israel left... They didn't make it into the promised land for 40 years. The scripture tells us at the end of chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, it says it's because of their unbelief that they didn't enter in. Because they couldn't believe or wouldn't believe. And they wander around and they go through all of these experiences. Now, by the way, you say, but Troy, isn't the promised land a picture of heaven? That's what I was taught growing up. 
That's what I was taught as a kid. As a matter of fact, I remember as a little kid, my grandparents were from rural Mississippi, and we'd go visit them quite often. We'd go to a little country church, and we'd sing out of the Stamps-Baxter hymnal. How many know what a Stamps-Baxter hymnal is? There's a few of you. There's a handful. <clears throat> and there were, a, the Stamps-Baxter hymnal, the thing that was unique about it, most of the songs were written in the 20s and 30s and 40s during the Great Depression. And because of that, there are a lot of songs in that hymnal about heaven. You look in a hymnal today or look in songbooks and different things, we don't talk a lot about heaven because Americans think we already have it. Um, they really do. We really do. Why would I want to go somewhere? This is good. I just want to have heaven here. But in those days, they talked a lot about heaven. I remember as a kid, there was a song, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye To Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. You remember that song? Anybody remember that song? All six of you. Okay. <laughs> I am bound for the promised land. And that's how it went. Oh, I have you sing with me, but none of you know it. All right. <laughs> By the way, the theology of that song's all wrong. It was a great song we sang. I remember as a kid singing that song, but the theology's wrong. Heaven is not the promised land. My possessions don't lie there. I have a, a spiritual inheritance, but according to Ephesians, it's already mine. It's already mine. The promised land was not a picture of heaven. You say, well, how do you know that for sure? Because Revelation tells us that when we see Jesus face to face, when we are with him in heaven, that there will be no more war, no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow. None of those things will exist. But in the promised land, all those things existed. Every single one of them. The promised land was not a picture of heaven. The promised land was a picture of a place on this earth where the people of God who were called by God could come under the rule of God and experience the pleasure and the joy of God and be a testimony to everyone else of what how great our God is. That's what the promised land was. Now let me ask you. There was a, there was a, a territory. There was a land. There was a place for the children of Israel under the old covenant where this took place. Under the new covenant, where do you think this place, this territory, this land is where God wants to establish his kingdom, where he says, I want to demonstrate who I am so that the people of God live under the rule of God and experience the joy and the pleasure and the freedom and the rest of God? Where do you think that is? And us, we are the temple. We are the place. That's what, that's what Corinthians tells us, that we are his temple, that he has taken up residence. Where on earth does God live? Turn to the person next to him and say, in you. Just turn to him and say, in you. In you. If you're a believer this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have accepted his payment for your sin, God himself lives in you. In you. You're his territory. You're the place where he says, I want to demonstrate to the world, to those who don't know me, I want to demonstrate what life is in my kingdom. What it looks like. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. It's still there. He says, I want you to see it. So the writer of Hebrews is talking about that. He said, they didn't enter in because of unbelief. They were still the called. They were still the children of God. They were called by his name. They were set apart. They were unique. God was still at work in them. Here's my, the, the great tragedy of pastoring. My experience is that I meet many Christians who know Jesus. I believe when I talk to them, I'm, I believe they know him. They've believed him. They've accepted his atoning work for their sin. And yet, 
the rest that he offers so often we fail to experience. I did for a long time and still do today if I forget, if I don't believe. I still today, I can, I can miss his rest. But it's there. I want you to, I, I, as I was looking at this, I was thinking, Lord, what is rest? What does that word rest mean? And I went through it and said, well, it's the place of rest where you cease from labor. I thought, okay, that's fine. Because this typical thing. But then I kept reading in this word dictionary, in this Greek word dictionary, and it gave some synonyms and things. And then it began to click with me, and it really helped. I want you to see this. I just took this right out of the, this word dictionary I was looking at. And they use synonyms, not English synonyms, Greek synonyms. They use Greek words for this Greek word as synonyms. Notice here, quietness. Loitering, leisure. See, loitering seems bad. We're not supposed to loiter, are we? Loitering, just loitering and leisure. I mean, literally, just loiter and leisure. That just seems wrong. You shouldn't do that. God wouldn't want you to loiter and leisure. That's the synonym. Recovery of breath. Revival. Revive. What was... What was once alive and now is depressed and oppressed and and shriveled up? He said, I want to bring it to life. Notice what he says here. Not primarily the cessation of work. He says, not just stopping work, which is what we normally think of as rest, with the resultant rest, but the restoration of lost strength and inner rest experienced simultaneously in the work. Isn't that good? That doesn't mean... Or that means I don't have to take a week off and go away from everything that's causing pressure in my life in order to have rest. I can have it right in the middle of of the very thing that God's called me to. Actually, I can have it right in the very middle of pressure, too, by the way. I'm going to make a distinction this morning between pressure and stress. Stress is damaging and destructive to you and me. It's not a good thing. Do you realize that that many of the number one selling prescriptions in the United States are designed to deal with stress. We are a stressed out nation. Stress is not a good thing. Pressure is a normal, natural thing, and you will not be able to escape it. Pressure is going to be there. If you live on planet Earth, you're going to have pressure. Some of the pressure you're going to cause yourself Some pressures others are going to cause to you. But pressure is a part of life. But pressure doesn't have to be a bad thing. Someone asked me this week if I was feeling pressure. I feel pressure every day. Every single day I feel pressure. So do you. I'm not alone in that. Anybody think back to a day this week where you didn't feel some kind of pressure? Anybody? See, look around. You see anybody's hand? No, I don't see a single hand. Pressure is a way of life. It's going to be there. But what I do with the pressure determines whether or not I experience rest. That's the key to all of this. What am I going to do with that pressure when it comes? I know what's happening. I've seen this before. God begins to do new things and reveal new things to people, and they experience levels of freedom they have not known before, and word spreads and testimonies are given, and you'll hear more of those, and I want you to, and people get excited. And then some of my pressure is going to come from some of you 
who are going to come and say, Pastor, i got to have that, and I needed it a year ago. I mean, i got to have this. And I'm going to smile and say, I know, I know. And we're going to help you. We're going to walk with you. But there are a limited number of counselors, those who, who are trained with caring for the heart. And, and, of course, some of them will be staying here for months, even after caring for the heart leaves. Um, and which we're grateful for, and they'll minister in some ways, but they're limited. They, I mean, they're, you know, they're people just like you and me, and there are limitations as to how much can be done. And so I start thinking in my mind, okay, Lord, we're going to have this need. How are we going to meet this need? You know, all these people are going to have, they're going to want this, and, and I'm going to want them to have it, and everybody's going to want them to have it, and, but there are limitations of what we can do. And Jesus, like, he just began, again, just so softly speaking to me, like, Troy, Caring for the heart doesn't set anybody free. I set them free. I give them rest. You don't have to have an appointment to get free, unless that appointment's with me. And I thought, yeah, Jesus, that's what you've been doing all these years. Someone asked me this morning, how'd you get hooked up with caring for the heart? I was kidnapped by a cult, and that's how I met them. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Sixteen, seventeen years ago, John came. John and Barb came to the church where I, I was on staff, and um, began to share. and And they did a seminar there, kind of similar to what took place here this week. And during that week, John met with everyone who was on staff. He wanted to take the test, which probably some seventy of you have taken this week. The Taylor Johnson um, had take that, and he looked at mine and. He didn't say these, but I, I remember in his words what I interpreted is, you're in bad shape, I don't know why you're in the ministry. That's what I, that's what I heard, all right? I know he didn't say those words, because John doesn't do that, but that's what I heard. You're in bad shape, I don't know why you're doing this. Um, and I was, I was, still am sometimes. Um, but God did something there in that, in that time. Lori and I sat down with John's, again, 16, 17 years ago. I think it was 98 but I can't remember exactly. It may have been 97. And God released something in me that day, began to do something. And for the next 15 years, I never heard, well, I take that back. For, a year, for the next year or so, Lori and I, we led worship for one of their conferences for Caring for the Heart and did some things. But, but after that, um, I didn't talk to John, didn't hear from John, wasn't really connected with any of this, nothing. And... Um, and then in November of 2013, one day I'm sitting or I'm walking down the hallway and I hear a voice and think, I know that voice. And I think Paul or somebody had, had bumped into them and, and that was John. He just was here locally and stopped in. We sat down and talked and he began sharing what God had been doing over the last 15 years. And as he shared, my heart was stirred because I thought, Lord, this fits in with what you're doing here. This is what you've been doing in me. Now, I want to tell you something. All of us are a work in progress, okay? We're all in process here, every single one of us. But I had this little session with Lori and I sat down, and I don't remember him saying anything to her. I, I was the one that was messed up, so he, was, he spent all his time talking to me. And, um, and, we, and we walked out of that. And God had done something, but I didn't have any more counseling. I didn't learn any more. All the stuff that God did for John in those next 15 years, I didn't know anything about it. 
But when he showed up in my office and he began to share about what God had been doing in his life personally and in the ministry and what he was seeing and how effective it was in setting people free, I knew, I knew that the Lord had been preparing. He'd been working in me. He'd been working in us as a church to prepare us for this. And when I thought about that, I realized you don't have to have a man or a method to be free. You just have to have Jesus. That's all you have to have. It's great when God uses a man or a method. That's awesome. These are tools and things. And thank God because the body of Christ are full of those where God has spoken, where he has worked, and they share it with others, and and people experience Jesus more because of what he's done in someone else's life. And we thank God for that. Yeah, you can clap. That's great. It's an awesome thing when that happens. And we praise God for it. But never forget that Jesus is the counselor. He's the healer. He's the one who does that. That's the reason you can go for 15 years and not have contact, and Jesus can be doing the same work in you that he's doing over here because he's the one who does it. I told Marilyn this week that one of the things that convinced me to invite Caring for the Heart to come here was watching her session on one of the DVDs when it talked about prayer, how to use prayer in counseling because you guys know that for the last eight years or so, God's had me on this journey, and and we've gone together, that we're going to be a church who understands what it is to communicate with God. And not just talk to him and rattle off and then walk away, but to hear. We're going to talk, and we're also going to listen. It's going to go both ways. And God has done incredible things because of that. But when I saw that, I thought, here's a counseling method that takes the heart of what God's been doing here and brings it right into the church or or wherever you happen to be so that we're we're actually talking to him and Jesus is the one who's doing the counseling. He's the one who's bringing the healing. You say, how does he do that? I asked Lindsay for permission a while ago because she shared this in prayer this morning. And Lindsay hasn't had a session yet. She's scheduled for later on. She hadn't had her session yet which again confirms that Jesus does the healing. She just sat in a seminar this week and listened and wrote down and learned. And one particular evening, God began speaking to her about her past and things there where the enemy had a hold on her. And so she did what John said. She just took the list and went through and God began to bring things to her mind. And she just went through that. She brought it before the Lord, just presented it, repented of it, asked Jesus to come in and to speak, to bring healing. And then she did a very simple thing that she learned in the seminar. She asked Jesus, Jesus, what does my heart look like with all, of, with all of this, with all this stuff, with all this junk? And she saw this picture in her mind, a piece of paper all wadded up, tossed in the trash, worthless, no value. We, just, we throw what we don't want in the trash. And she asked another question. She said, Jesus, what would my heart look like if you healed it? What would it look like? She said Jesus gave her a picture and she was sitting on his lap and he was just brushing her hair out of her face and just across her. And he looked at her, looked in her eyes, said, Lindsay, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. She didn't have a counselor. She just had Jesus. And he's enough. He's enough. I want you to see a verse. Don't put it up yet, Dan. I'm going to read you a verse. 
and I'm going to read it out of the message. Because if I read it out of most any other translation, you'd immediately know it. And most of you would do like me. You'd say, yeah, yeah, I know that. And you'd start quoting along, and I know that verse. So I'm going to read it out of the message. And I want you to close your eyes with me. Would you close your eyes? I promise I'm not going to squirt you with anything or do anything. Okay. All right, just close your eyes. All right. I'm going to read the verse to you. See if you know what it is. But listen to this. This is Jesus speaking, and he's talking to you. So just listen. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. He goes on. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Now, your eyes still closed. If you think you know where that verse is, you know what that is, why don't you wave it? Just raise your hand. Quite a few of you, all right? Quite a few of you didn't. But if I were to tell you, that's, that's Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. See, you would do what I'm doing. You start quoting that thing. I mean, I've heard that my whole life, Troy. Oh, but Jesus is saying personally, are you tired? Are you worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. I've told you before, it's pretty common now around the, around the church because I've shared it with you all publicly, but one of the places I love to go when I feel pressure is I go out under those trees. I come to the trees. It's not the trees. The trees don't have magical power. It's Jesus. I just meet him there. I just stop and I listen. I get away. I pull away from all the other stuff. I pull away from the pressure because pressure is a part of life. It's there. And I come to him. And I want to show you something. Actually, um, Andrew and Sam and Austin, can you guys help me? Can you get this table in this bag and bring it up here for me? That'd be great, guys. These strong young men. Just bring it right on up here, guys. That's awesome. That's fine. That's great. Thank you, guys. All right. I want to show you something. I like object lessons. They help me. They help me see. I'm going to put this on the stand, Chris, so I have my hands free. All right. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't have exactly what I needed, and so yesterday I tried this experiment and it only worked 50% of the time, okay? So if it doesn't work the way it's supposed to work, then I'll just explain to you the way it's supposed to work. All right. We all have pressure, right? We've already established that. We all have it. The question is, what am I going to do with it when I have it? Because it's going to come. It's going to come from your spouse or your children or from your boss. 
It never comes from your pastor. I never put pressure on anybody. <laughs> but it comes from other places. Sometimes it comes from yourself. You put it on yourself. Your own expectations. What you think is expected of you. What you believe you should be doing. Pressure comes. Whether we bring it on ourselves or other people apply it. Pressure doesn't have to be a bad thing. As a matter of fact, pressure can become the greatest thing in your life. You say, how is that? Because... A friend of mine, Gary Fraley, once told me, Troy, anything that drives me to my knees is a blessing. In other words, anything that causes me to run to Jesus is a blessing. Everything in my life that causes me to run to Jesus is a blessing. Pressure can just be a catalyst to run to Jesus. I had a very difficult phone call this week. In the middle of all that God's doing, I had a very difficult phone call. And I walked out of it, and I walked into where everybody was working, and Nina looked up and well, I guess we've worked together long enough now. She reads my face, and she goes, you okay? And I go, I will be. I'm going to go spend some time with Jesus. See, pressure doesn't have to be a bad thing. It just caused me to go sit down with him. And when I do, he does what he does. He always does what he does. Now, here's the way this is supposed to work. Fine, we'll find out. Colonel, are our insurance premiums paid up? you come back up here and help me, buddy? I may need more hands than I have. Why don't you come over here on this side? All right. We talk about turning the heat up. When we turn the heat up, there's pressure. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn the heat up inside this bottle. There's an egg here. And when I'm, I'm going to light this, I'm going to turn the heat up, I'm going to drop this into the bottle. Andrew's then going to take this egg and just place it right on the top. Now, see, it won't fit. You can see it won't fit into the bottle. Some of you have seen this before. I've done it for youth and children's ministries and different things. But it won't fit. Now, I could try to make it fit and cram it in there and it break into a million pieces. Um, but it, it doesn't fit naturally. But when we turn the, the heat up, I want you to see what happens. You want to hold on to that, bud? And when, after I drop it in, you just set it on top, okay? Now, this did what has happened repeatedly to me uh, over the last few days. It broke apart in the process of going through the hole. So now I have to describe to you what should happen. <laughs> You want to try again? I brought a second bottle. We will try one more time. Here you go. You ready? Now see this? Oh. This one may have stayed together enough for me to demonstrate the other part. Pressure often does this for you and me. It entraps us. It sucks us in. One of the reasons I love this illustration, it has so many spiritual analogies to it. But 
this is what pressure often does in our life. The fire gets turned up, we get sucked in, we feel oppressed, we feel burdened, we feel, we, we feel beat down, we have all of these things that happen in our life, we feel trapped. Anybody ever, pressure comes on you and you feel trapped, and you just want to run away? Yeah. See, that's what happens. Now, here's the problem. Anybody who's lived long enough knows that there are times you just can't run away. And even if you did, if you're causing your own pressure, you can run away, but you take you with you. So now you're stuck. You're trapped. And then Jesus reminds you of something. And he says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He says in Romans, as a matter of fact, it's too good for me to butcher it. Romans 8. Who is it that condemns? This is verse 34. Who is it that condemns? It's a question. Jesus Christ. Now here's his answer to that question. Jesus Christ who died more than that who was raised to life. He's not saying Jesus is the one who condemns because he said at the beginning of the chapter there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, who condemns? He's saying, Jesus Christ, because he died, because he rose, because he's seated, seated at the right hand of God, he's also interceding for us. Because of that, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? Shall pressure? Or hardship? There's more pressure. Or persecution? That's extreme pressure. Or famine? That's pretty serious pressure. Or nakedness? That'd be pressure. All right? Or danger? There's pressure. Or sword, somebody chasing you with a sword, that's pressure. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're conquerors not because we're stronger, not because we've read more Bible verses, not because we've memorized half the Bible, not because I went to church you know, my whole life. I'm not stronger because of anything. I'm stronger because he loves me. Because he loves me. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any power, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, is anything left out? Nothing. That includes you. Even you can't separate you from the love of God. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right? No pressure can do that. Pressure is not your problem. It's not my problem. It's what we do with it. Now, this is nasty. It's supposed to stay together in one nice piece, which it did not. But some of it did, okay? And it may not work because I may not get a good seal, all right? How in the world do you get me and you untrapped? How do you get us out of the bottle? How do you get us from this place where we feel like I'm trapped? That's why this passage where he says, greater is he who is in you. Those of you who are scientists, you already know. Joel's sitting back there thinking, man, I wish he'd let me do this. I could do this way better than him. All right? Um, 
so those of you who understand this, you know the principle, right? All you engineers, you know what happened. The only way to get that egg out of there without breaking the bottle, the only way to get that egg out of there is to somehow get the pressure inside the bottle to be greater than what's out here. And it will do what happened. Because when I lit that match or when I lit that piece of paper, the flame sucking the oxygen out of the bottle, it created this vacuum which just pulled it right in. So I have to reverse the vacuum for it to come back out. Now in order to do that, Normally, you put your mouth up here and you blow on this thing, but it's nasty, so I'm going to do my best here, all right? It's not going to let me make a seal, I don't think. It is going to let me make a mess, but not a seal. All right? Take my word for it. Go home and watch it on Google, all right? It will do that. You'll cause it. Um, it'll create this pressure and it will push that egg right back out of the bottle it's really neat to see when it works right can I tell you I have been that egg thousands of times that Jesus just pushes right back out of the bottle thousands of times this is the way the Christian life is supposed to work This is what we miss. This is what we don't get. This is what I never understood when I became a Christian. I got saved and thought, okay, now that Jesus has saved me, I'm going to work really hard to be worthy of what he's done for me and to be a good Christian and one day get to this place where I just got it all figured out. I've got it all wired and I walk and look and live like Jesus. Only problem was I thought I would do it independent of Jesus. He said, Troy, that was never what I intended for you. I never intended for you to live life independent of me. I never intended for you to have strength to overcome. I was going to be your strength. I never intended for you to be able to love the way I love. I was going to be love in you and through you. I never intended for you to have joy apart from me, but in my presence is fullness of joy. I never intended for you to learn enough that you didn't need me anymore. That was never my intent. But that's what Christianity has become. That's why we get burned out on religion. Because we separated from Jesus. So here's here's my encouragement to you today. Here's what God says to you today. Because you're going to go home this afternoon, and some of you are going to have pressure. Saying, well, duh. Right? That's no big news. You know, that's no that's not a that's not a headline. But what that pressure will do, if we drop into our old patterns, I'll get discouraged, or I'll get depressed, or I'll get angry, or I'll hurt somebody else because I'm hurt. I'll say things that afterward I regret. I'll do what I think is the right thing, but recognize in the moment it appears to have no no spiritual eternal impact because I'm just responding to pressure or I can allow that pressure to drive me to Jesus and just get before him and say Jesus what do you want me to hear what do you want me to see like like Lindsay Jesus what does my heart look like when I did it my way and Jesus what does it look like when you heal my heart I asked somebody last night because they were struggling. I asked them just to ask Jesus, 
what would he want? How valuable you are to him. Just ask him if he would show you how valuable. They texted me later. said, well, I don't know if it's much, but this, this is what you... And I, man, I got so excited. I thought, you realize how value, what value he just placed on there? I'm telling you, folks. This is- Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.